Once you get your Bible, you can open it up to 1 Timothy 2, if you like. That's where we're going to start off. We are still working through this uh, series. We have two more sermons in uh, our series on exploring uh, biblical elders and deacons and understanding what the Lord has to say about those two positions. Um, And after that, we're going to be starting up a series verse by verse through the New Testament letter to the Galatians. So um, if you'd like to start reading that ahead of time and getting prepared for that, you can go ahead and do that. But today we are in 1 Timothy chapter 2. So every once in a while I'm going to preach a sermon that I know will have the potential to fill my inbox the week after. And so uh, when I preach a sermon like that, I tend to spend a little bit more time than I normally would asking that the Lord would keep me from putting a foot in my mouth or saying the wrong thing. So for some of you, I've asked you to pray for us this week as the topic we're going to be talking about is somewhat sensitive. Thank you for lifting us up. We always want to give you the true Word of God. We want to give it to you clearly. We want to give it to you without... Uh, the lens of, of human opinion. We want to show you what we believe the word, the word of God is saying and what God is intending by what the Word is saying. And so today we're going to be talking about a particularly controversial topic, especially in light of the cultural climate that we live in today. There's a big question looming in the hearts and minds of many as we have been teaching through the biblical prescription for leadership in God's church. As we study the Scripture to establish a solid understanding of what God teaches about the roles of elders, the roles of deacons, why does it seem that God has left women out of the equation? Of course, the nature of the gospel that makes up the very core of who we are is a controversial gospel, isn't it? We know that preaching the truth of God is going to offend people at times because it gets at the really, really to the heart of, of our, our very nature. It, it challenges our authority over ourselves. And for that reason, there will always be some kind of external pressure pushing on the people of God, compelling the faithful to be less of what God made them and more of what they were before they were redeemed by Jesus. And so from time to time, and over the generations, we've seen this where we've heard that God's people are too strict and that if if we really want to get to the heart of God, we've got to get rid of, of these expectations on people. We've heard that our views on morality need to change and adapt to the culture and to the times. We've been told that we're wrong on gender identity. We've been told that our view of family is outdated and needs to be refreshed. We've been told that our views on creation aren't scientifically responsible. We've been told that surely we can't believe simply because a book that was written 2,000 years ago told us to believe. So there have been challenges and there will be challenges until the Lord Jesus comes back to the things that God teaches us to believe and to the stances that we take, especially those ones that are near and dear to the hearts of, of human beings. So today in the church in America, we're facing rising pressure to reconsider the commands of God concerning the roles of men and women in the church and in society in general. This controversy may tempt us to see God's word as oppressive, as out of touch, as even misogynistic. And all of these things, the word of God emphatically are not. The word of God is not misogynistic. It is not against women. It is not oppressive. And I guarantee you it is not out of touch. The Lord God wrote these things for our good, for our benefit and blessing, 
They are eternal truths that do not fade with time, and he doesn't have to call an option to adapt to what man has discovered. Rather, man needs to discover the power of the word that he has revealed to us. So church, let us be sober-minded, let us be humble as we approach this topic, and let us seek the word and let it speak to us rather than trying to oppose our opinions, our feelings on the text itself. So as we've studied the leadership positions that we see described in Paul's letters, it becomes increasingly clear that God has chosen men to fill the roles of elder and deacon in his church. These are the two biblical offices we've been examining and we see again and again that Scripture seems to point to men filling these roles. It's, it's not too difficult to see this. This is a constant and consistent example of the church's story throughout history. In fact, it is quite obvious throughout the Scriptures that God has chosen, for His own will and reasons, to use men in key leadership positions. Jesus chose 12 human beings to serve a very important role in His ministry, didn't He? We call them the 12 disciples, the 12 apostles. And they were instrumental in the life of the early church. They were all men, each one of them. There is no record of any woman who occupies the station of apostle or elder in the New Testament that we have and we learn from and that guides our practice and worship. In the text we read last week that showed us the beginning of the office of deacon, Acts chapter 6, we saw that seven faithful individuals were chosen to fill those first positions of deacon in the church, and that each one of them were godly men filled with the Holy Spirit. Any mention of these specific roles consistently uses masculine pronouns. When it's talking about the roles in general, it often says he, his, and in the two passages that line out the character requirements of those positions, both elders and deacons are described explicitly as the husband of one wife, or as a one-woman man. We've talked already and demonstrated that this does not imply that elders and deacons all have to be married, but it does present to us another clear example of the two leadership roles that govern the church being described in terms of men serving in those positions. Furthermore, we have some very clear teachings in the New Testament that prohibit women from serving as official teachers over men in the context of the church gathered together. I want us all to turn now, if, you don't, if you're not there already, to 1 Timothy chapter 2, so that we can just get right into the scripture about this. Remember, this is, this is just before Paul describes deacons and elders and the requirements in chapter 3. So this is all part of one discussion, which comes from the Lord God filling the heart of Paul with inspired truth, that he might share it with Timothy, another elder in the church in Ephesus, and give him direction and instruction on how to grant wisdom to the church and guidance to their leadership. So the purpose of this letter to Timothy is described to us, and uh, I'm going to read a little passage from chapter 3 real quick. This is kind of the thesis of the whole book of 1 Timothy. In chapter 3, verse 14, it says, I am writing these things to you so that you... Um, I am writing these things to you so that you, if I delay, may know how one ought to behave in the household of God which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. So these words that he has given are not just to the church in Ephesus. They are to the church in at large, the church throughout the, the saved world. Anywhere where there are people gathered together to praise and honor Jesus Christ should pay attention to the words that Paul is giving to Timothy in this letter as they are vital to our understanding of church government. 
So that clarifies to us this, what the section that we read, uh, that we're going to read today is about. It's not just for that particular church, but it's for our church. It's for every church. So turning back to 1 Timothy chapter 2, we're going to be looking at verses 11 through 14 this morning. The Apostle Paul writes, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So as we read those words, it's very likely that many in this room are stirred with offense by these words. It's very likely that possibly people are looking at these things and thinking, what on earth is the Apostle Paul saying here? And how does this match our understanding that God creates man and woman equally? What I want to point out first of all is, is you've got you to read these passages in the context of the culture that they're written in. And it's really clear in the very beginning of this passage what does Paul want women to do? Don't skip over this. He wants them to learn. He wants them to be edified by the Word of God. This was radically different than what most of the cultures around Christianity were teaching at the time or feeling at the time. Most women were not permitted to learn. Most women were not invited into university to get higher education, to expand their mind. So notice right away that Paul is taking a radical stance in his time. Let a woman learn. He desires that all of God's people, whether they be male or female, benefit from the Word of God. It would take the rest of the Western world hundreds of years to catch up to this attitude, wouldn't it? And in many places in the world, we're still trying to help people understand that women ought to be allowed to learn and to grow and to mature. The oppression of women is a problem inherent in sinful humanity. It is not a problem that was invented by the church and its leadership structures. Some people want to try to rewrite history and say, well, we have all these hundreds of years of Christians teaching that only men can serve in leadership positions, and that has oppressed women, when exactly the opposite is the case. There were thousands of years of, of men behaving badly before the church clarified its position on elder leadership and deacon leadership in the New Testament. And in fact, Christian, uh, Christian efforts have made tremendous strides in helping to equalize the treatment of the genders in our world. So Paul desires for women to grow in knowledge and wisdom, just as he desires men to, but there are guidelines about how this should be done. Paul cites the third chapter of Genesis as a foundational cause for the division of roles between male and, gender, uh, and female genders. So if you're not familiar with that account, I'm just going to give you a quick recap about what's happened up to the point of Genesis chapter 3. It's the very first book in the Bible. God has created all things. He's spoken it into existence. He has made man and woman, and he has declared that he made them both in his image. He has given them a wonderful world to live in. Specifically, they are planted in a beautiful and lustrous garden that is full with life and full of food and, and is a blessing for them to live in, to enjoy together. He's given them one restriction, one law. They're given great freedom, but they have one law that's supposed to govern their actions. And that one law had a very serious consequence. There was a particular tree in the garden that these two individuals, Adam and Eve, the first man, the first woman, were not to eat from. All the other trees were available to them, but they could not eat from the tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. 
So one rule, and yet Satan enters into the picture, takes the form of a serpent, and lies to Adam and Eve. Eve is deceived. Adam fails to protect his wife from deception, and that leads Adam to sin as well. As the first man and the first woman sin, from that point forward, the nature of sin is passed on to every other human who'd walk this earth with one exception, that being Jesus Christ. So, knowing that background, knowing that that, that scene impacts the rest of human history and largely defines the conflict that we struggle against, the fact that man is not naturally near to God, but needs to be saved so that he can come near to God, we see that the First Timothy 2 passage that we read earlier gives us two guidelines. Um, first of all, the first guideline is this. For the man, God ordains biblical headship. There is an order to creation, and that order has a reflection in the offices of authority in God's church. Just as it has a reflection in the way authority is supposed to play out in biblical families. As a result of the order of creation, because God makes man first and then makes Eve from the side of Adam, there is a special task given to him. And as a result of the order of the fall, the first woman being deceived, and then Adam falling into temptation after her, God has ordained that man will be holding leadership positions over women in both the home and the church. Now, as a means of reminding us of Adam's failure to lead his wife away from the temptations of the serpent, God declares that man carries the responsibility for directing and conducting the family in a way that pleases God. Man, by way of being the first creature made in the image of God, will be the gender that shoulders that burden, the burden of directing the family. Gentlemen, I don't know if you realize this, but if your family is failing to honor the Lord God with their actions, the burden of that falls upon your shoulders. It doesn't matter if your wife was a believer long before you and you came to know the Lord later. If you are the man of the household, then God is looking to you to direct and to guide your wife and your children toward a right relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean you have to save all of your family. That's not in our power. But it does mean you have a certain responsibility that has been delegated to you. You have a stewardship to treat your family with care and respect. They need to see in you a desire to pursue Jesus Christ and to trust in the grace that only He can give to us. You should be leading your family to pray. You should be showing your family that daily study of the Word is important to you. You should be the first one ready to go for church in the morning. You should be the person who is directing your family towards a better, stronger relationship in the Lord. That responsibility is yours, Dad. It is your responsibility. As a means of, of reminding us that men are responsible in the home, we also have this responsibility in the church. One specific responsibility is given to us in this passage, and that is leadership. But that leadership responsibility is delegated into two arenas, the family and the church. Let us remember, who is the true head of the church? Jesus Christ is the true head of the church. Colossians 1.18 says, And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in Him everything or that in everything he might be preeminent. That word preeminent means that he comes first, that he is primary. 
that in all areas of our life, he is the leader. So this headship that man has is a representative headship. It is not a literal headship. Men are to serve as the leaders and the instructors of of the word in God's church, not because they are the head of the church, but because they are functioning in a leadership capacity because the head of the church, Jesus Christ, has ordered them to do so. Does that make sense? Men are to serve as leaders because Jesus has made them leaders. And the only way they're going to do that job well is if they stay connected to Jesus Christ who will supply to them the wisdom and the strength to do that job well. So the work of elder and deacon is not something that has been earned by man. It is something that has been assigned to him and ultimately cannot be accomplished apart from the provision that only Jesus can provide. So man is given this biblical headship. It is one of his roles. Women is also given a role in this passage in 1 Timothy 2. Her role is that God ordains for her biblical submission. Biblical submission. Again, this is a word that our culture has polluted to the degree that now when we hear the word submission, we instantly, we instantly bristle at it. But we don't need to act that way towards this word. This is a beautiful word, a word that has been demonstrated to us in power by the very Savior who has made us belong to the Lord God. Due to the woman's status as the second created in God's image, God will bear a special testimony to the importance of submission through the way that she lives out her life to obedience, in obedience to God and the way that uh, women learn in the gathering of the church. Therefore, just as Ephesians 5.22 and Colossians 3.18 tell us, Christian wives are expected to submit to the leadership of their husbands. By the way, women, you don't have to submit to the leadership of all men, do you? This is a covenant arrangement. You are only expected to submit to the leadership of your husbands and to the people that you allow to lead you as elders in your church. So Ephesians 5.22 and Colossians 3.18 makes it very clear that women are to be submissive to their husbands in the context of the family. Likewise, in the context of the church, women are to fill various important positions, but by the guidance of 1 Timothy 2.11-14, they are not allowed to be the teachers in the assembly of, the, of the, the, the believers. The word is to be taught by men in the assembly of the saints, and they're not to accept, exercise authority over other men in the church. Those responsibilities are set aside for certain men who will serve as elders. And as we've talked about for the last several weeks, not every man is eligible to serve as an elder. There's a variety of very important requirements that a person must demonstrate in faith and love in Jesus before they are allowed to serve as elders or deacons in the church. This call to submission, friends, is not a punishment to women. It is a delegated responsibility. In the same way that man's leadership is a delegated responsibility. Submission is a crucial aspect of the proper function of family and church. And if submission is not done rightly, then you cannot have a good organization. You cannot have a good community. You cannot have a good team if if there is not a healthy degree of submission amongst those gatherings of people. While women are called to illustrate submission in a special way in their obedience to Jesus, every Christian has to learn to practice submission. This is not just for women. Titus 3, 1 through 7 says, remind them, meaning the whole church, to be submissive to rulers and authorities and to be obedient and to be ready for every good work. That's Titus chapter 3, verse 1. 
He goes on to express in, in verses 1 through 7 how this need for submission is, is because of the fact that we have a sinful nature in our hearts by birth. That we are going to naturally try to resist the Lord God and it's only by His grace and forgiveness that we can learn to trust Him as Savior and submit to His goodness. This submission is part of, partial to our salvation. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. What is a Lord? A Lord is someone who rules with authority. If you confess your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe that in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. So our very trust in Jesus Christ is not just an intellectual belief or it is not just an affection towards Him. It is also a submission to His authority. When we are saved, it's because we come to know that our sin is powerfully dangerous. We come to know that our sin has separated us away from this God who desires to love us and be in fellowship with us. And we come to understand that all of our efforts, all of our hardest work can never undo our sin. When we realize this reality and we, we see that the Lord God knows this and He's provided a way out for us by sending His Son, Jesus Christ, when we see that He, though He was perfect and deserved not to suffer and die, nevertheless voluntarily suffered and died in our place, when we put our faith and trust in the Son of God, it is at that moment that the work of Jesus makes us His. When we submit our heart to Him and say, Lord, here is my broken, shameful life of sin. I don't want to rebel against you anymore, but I can't overcome my nature by myself. God, make me yours. I want to follow you from this point forward. Be the King of my life. When we submit our hearts to Him and trust in Him as Lord, then He is happy to forgive our sins and to give us a new identity. He takes away our transgressions and He makes us holy so that we might be close to the Lord God. This submission, which the world would say is for suckers, the world would say if you're having to submit, that means that you're less than or you did something wrong. This submission's even demonstrated to us by Jesus Himself, isn't it? In His time on earth, Jesus showed us incredible willingness to follow the leading of God the Father. Look at John 5.30. Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. These are the words of Jesus who never sinned who in all ways was perfect and did the will of the Father. He is showing to us by way of example that submission is not something to run away from. It is beautiful if you are submitting to what is right and good. Luke 22, verse 42, Jesus says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Speaking of his need to go to the cross and suffer and die, he was agonizing over the hardship that this would bring to his heart. He did not want to become he did not want to become defiled by sin. And so he's asking the Lord God, the Father, remove this cup from me. But then listen to what he says. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Women, when you are given this task, this special calling of biblically ordained submission, God is giving you an opportunity to be Christ-like in a courageous way that shows and demonstrates the love of Jesus to your family, to your church, and to the world around you. There is no shame in being submissive in the way that Jesus, our Savior, was submissive to the Father. 
So two roles are given. One for men to specifically live out. One for women to specifically live out. Men will be the heads of households. And some will be called to be the overseers and servant leaders of the churches. And women will submit to the leadership of the men that God appoints them to work alongside, whether that be their husband or that be the elders of their church. And in doing so, we'll live out a model of Christ-like obedience to the will of God. This is called the complementarian view of church leadership. The complementarian view of leadership recognizes that in the Bible, God has ordained separate but complementary responsibilities for the male and female genders, each uniquely reflecting aspects of the character and will of God. And when we say complementary, that doesn't just mean, hey, you look nice today. That's a great dress. Hey, those are some cool new shoes you got on. I really liked the way you sang that last song. That's giving a compliment. But what we're talking about here is complementarianism in the regards that God has made us so that we should depend on one another. That men and women are uniquely different, but those differences fill in the gaps. What man lacks, women possesses. What women lacks, man possesses. And together, in unity, in community of faith, we create a more perfect whole. God has given us this complementarian structure so that we would have order, so that we would be able to understand what God desires us to do in living out faith to Him. Now, naturally, some questions are going to arise as people try to come to terms with what they see demonstrated in Scripture. Some will ask, okay, so there are no obvious examples of female elders, but are we ignoring the Old Testament prophetess Throughout several areas of the Old Testament scripture, from time to time, we will see examples of women who serve the role of prophet. We see Miriam in Exodus 15.20 is called a prophetess. Deborah in Judges 4.4 is called a prophetess. Huldah in 2 Kings 22.14. And then even in the early pages of Luke, in chapter 2, verse 36, before the New Testament church is established, we see Anna as a prophetess in the temple who celebrates the coming of Messiah, Jesus Christ. They were all prophetesses, and this means that they exercised the standard of Old Testament prophetic gifting. What that means is that they were able to be given the infallible, authoritative prophecy of God, the words that He desired for His people, and he, they were able to deliver that to the, the nation of Israel, to God's chosen. This means very important things to the church. It tells us something. God is willing to allow a woman to hold one of the most holy responsibilities known to mankind. God was willing to put his very eternal words in the heart and mind of women and allowed them to deliver those words to his churches. That shows you the degree of love and respect he has for women. So this, this complementarianism that we're talking about today is not God likes men better so he gives them leadership positions. He likes women less so he makes them be submissive. That's exactly not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is a God who has given specific roles, both of which are beautiful and valuable to the church. So here we do see these Old Testament examples of women who are bringing the word of God to people. But also, we need to take, we need to take note of this. While we do see women prophetesses in the Old Testament economy, when it comes to the positions of authority and guidance that consistently rule over God's people, God chose, even throughout the Old Testament, to fill those positions with men, didn't he? If we read the Old Testament carefully, we never see a priestess. 
We never see a woman on the throne of Israel. So there's some consistency here to this complementarianism. It wasn't something invented in the New Testament. We see that throughout creation, God has been using this pattern, this complementary pattern, to bring glory to himself. And that makes sense because 1 Timothy 2 tells us it was established in the first three chapters of Scripture, right? In the very beginning of creation. The function of a prophet is fairly narrow, isn't it? To be a prophet in the proper definition of the term, one must speak the infallible, inspired words of God. Words which would then, by definition, hold the very same weight and power as the scripture that we study this morning. Elders and deacons are not prophets in that sense, are they? When In the next few weeks, when we elect deacons to serve this church... They are not going to be expected to bring us a fresh word of revelation that we're going to add to the holy canon of Scripture. Elders are called to govern and to teach what has already been revealed to the church, the sufficient word of God, which in all ways is able to equip us and make us ready for ministry. Elders are not here to listen carefully to the new things that God has to say. We are not prophets in the Old Testament sense of the word. Prophecy was very important to the equipping of the saints in the early church because the New Testament scriptures had not yet been canonized. But now that we have the complete revelation of God in the Holy Scriptures of the New Testament, we don't need people coming and giving us new prophecies day in and day out. It has never been the responsibility, by the way, of God's people to elect prophets. He has never told the nation of Israel Gather together and find a man among you who will serve as the prophet. And he doesn't say that in the New Testament church either. Though we have read in the last several weeks that God does give this responsibility to the New Testament church, appoint elders, acknowledge deacons. He nowhere says you are to appoint prophets or prophetesses. That is not our responsibility. If God wants to raise up prophets or prophetesses, He will do that in his own time and by his own will. But it is not for the church to do that. We are called to appoint only two offices, that of the elder and the deacon. And others might rightfully ask, they might say, well, pastor, are we ignoring verse 1 of Romans 16? And that would be a good question to ask because in chapter 16 of Romans, the Roman letter is being brought to a close And the Apostle Paul is sending a greeting back to the people whom he's writing this letter to. And he's sharing not only greeting from himself, but from other faithful servants of the church. And so Romans chapter 16, verse 1 through 2 says in the ESV, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church of Sencria, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Now, if you're reading from certain translations, you might have an NIV, or if you had a New Living Translation, you would read something more like this. I commend you to our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Sencria. The word for servant there is the very same word that we see used to describe the office of deacon in the New Testament. And so throughout the ages, there have been examples of godly church that saw this passage of scripture and said, this is enough evidence for us. We believe that deacons can be not only men, but women. Deacons are not called to necessarily teach the word of God. So this in no way violates 
1 Timothy 2, where it says that women are not to hold authority over men in the church or teach in the context of the church gathered. So let's allow women to be deaconesses. Now here's our hang-up with this. The elders of this church, in feeling compelled by Scripture to institute deacons, remember we talked about last week how for many years we haven't had deacons, and we feel convicted that that's not right. The Scripture tells us that we're to have elders and deacons, and we have not had elders, or we have not had deacons. And so we are, we're making a lot of effort right now to put that into place and to do it responsibly. But we do not want to exchange negligence for insubordination. We don't want to exchange this, the fact that we did not have deacons for a long time and then bring in deacons but do it in a way that's not pleasing to the Lord. So we knew we would need to come to a strong biblical conclusion about whether or not women can serve in this specific capacity, whether they can be deaconesses in the church. And so your elder board has been studying, we have been praying, we have been looking at various respected authors in the church to see their perspectives on things, and in two of our elders' meetings, we got together and discussed and spoke and came to the conclusion that this is a very tricky interpretation in Romans 16. The reason for that, the word for deacon in the New Testament is not a specialized title. It is the generic word for voluntary servant. So you've got a little word focus in your, in your note sheet there. Diakonon, which is used in Romans 16, verse 1, is a feminine singular noun that means a waiter, a servant, an administrator, somebody who voluntarily serves in the church. And so you're going to see that word used throughout the Scripture, speaking of people who are just doing regular tasks. It's not just used about the specific role of deacon that we see formed in Acts chapter 6. But any servant who is giving their time and effort in just about any capacity, inside or outside of the church, can be described as a diakonon. Romans 16.1, is Phoebe being recognized here and appointed a deacon or simply being described as a voluntary servant? Now we see a similar problem in the Hebrew word for angel. If you were to read through the Old Testament and you come across a passage of Scripture where it says that an angel came and spoke to someone, the word for angel is not a special supernatural word describing a, an entity that is very different than a human being. The word for angel is simply the word messenger. So there are several places in the Old Testament where it might say a messenger came and spoke to such and such, and we're not entirely sure. We have to use the context to determine whether that angel was a shimmering godly being or if that angel was just a person that came and delivered a message for that individual. In the same way, this word diakonon is not specifically a title for the office. It can also be used as a general term to describe a servant. And how many of us in the church are supposed to be servants of the Lord? Everybody. Every one of us. Every one of us is to serve the word, the, uh, the word of God and to give honor to the Lord in the, in the way that we obey Him and we respond to the Scripture. So unless we can definitively say that diakonon here is a title and not a description then to appoint female deacons risks going beyond the Scripture. And that is not a step that the elders of this church are willing to take. So while we have great respect for the women who so faithfully serve in this church, we will not be taking the step of appointing women to the office of deacon because we don't see a strong enough argument in the Scripture to warrant that step. Now, we don't consider that interpretation 
as essential to the faith. So you might run across other Christians in churches that are serving the Lord God and loving Him, and they have prayed sincerely, they have sought the Scriptures, and they believe that female deacons are a viable option for the church, and we can join hand in hand with them in fellowship. We can, we can praise the Lord because, again, to serve as a deacon does not violate the passage of Scripture we were studying earlier in the sermon, 1 Timothy 2. It doesn't make a, a deaconess a teacher over men or a leader over men necessarily. Uh, but as far as our hearts are concerned, as we've prayed through this and studied the Scriptures, we believe the more responsible decision is to maintain uh, a, diaconate, a diaconate board that is made up of men. Now, I want us to all understand this very clearly. I don't want you to leave this place with the wrong impression about what God is doing in designing leadership for His church. God has not chosen men to lead His church because men are in some way better than women. That is absolutely not the reason why we see Scripture ordaining men for these tasks. Men and women are equally important to the Lord God. The creation makes it clear that both men and women bear the image of God. First, uh, first chapter of Genesis, verses 26 to 27. And then God said, let us make man in our image, in the image of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created them. Male, or created him. Male and female, he created them. So this early testimony to the creation shows that male and female, both, are created in the image of God. We bear special attributes of the Lord God. It doesn't mean that we're demigods or small gods, that we can somehow attain to godhood. What it means that God has chosen to use this creation, man and woman, human, human beings, to reflect the glory of of his creation in themselves. His beauty, his love, his intelligence, his justice, his mercy and patience can be put on display in the person of a human being, whether it be man or woman. Our greatest value is not in what we can or cannot do. It's not in how much weight we can lift or in how many push-ups we can do or how fast we can run. Our greatest value is tied to the fact that we represent the image of God. That is the basis for why human life is to be sanctified, to the reason why human life is to be considered glorious and protected, because man is made in the image of God. And then when we get to the New Testament, the book of Galatians, which we're going to be studying in the weeks to come, Galatians chapter 3, verses 27 through 29 says, For as many as you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Now this passage of scripture that comes to us in the third chapter of Galatians is in the context of something very specific. He's talking about salvation. He's talking about what it takes for someone to come to know the Lord God in a saving way. And in speaking of this right relationship that we can have with God through Jesus... He says that as far as salvation is concerned, Greeks are no better off than Jews. Jews are no better off than Greeks. Your ethnicity doesn't affect whether or not you can be saved by God. Likewise, he says your economic standing, whether you are a slave or whether you're a free man, has no bearing on whether or not you receive the Lord God or not. That, that doesn't play into it at all. 
There are millions of people in India right now who are born into a caste system where there is basically a, a, a people who are able to own land and have freedoms and vote. And then there's a second class of people called the Dalit. And those Dalits, when they are born into that bloodline, are considered less than a human being. They are not allowed to own property. They are not allowed to vote. They have no legal rights in the courts in India. They are considered less than a human. That's a disgrace because those Dalits are made in the image of God. They bear the same significance that every human being does. And so here in Galatians, we are told that it doesn't matter whether you're a Dalit or whether you are royalty. Jesus Christ can save you either way. And then he goes on to talk about how there is no male, there is no female. Salvation is not for men. Men, men are not saved, and then if they've got a wife, then the wife just happens to be saved because the man's saved. That's not how it works. God loves every individual, and every individual, through faith in Jesus, can come to know the Lord God and be redeemed. So what, what, what Paul is doing here in this passage, he's not eliminating gender. He's not nullifying gender. He's talking specifically in the context of salvation, in the context of belonging to God, our gender makes no difference. Women are, as Peter tells men in his first letter, joint heirs with men in the grace of life. So we are receiving the same benefit from God because of our faith in Jesus Christ. In order for man and woman to be equal, do they have to be exactly the same? They don't. Men and women are different. And that's something that as a society we need to embrace and celebrate. Men and women don't have to be exactly the same to be equal. If they did, we'd be throwing diversity in the garbage. We'd be, we'd be disregarding the fact that God makes each one of us different than the other. God loves diversity. And that's shown in the roles that he gives to men and women in his church. In order for a man and woman to be equal, they do not have to be exactly the same. In order for a man and woman to be equal, do they have to have exactly the same opportunities? I would say the answer to that is also no. God has ordained some for a certain work and some for other works. Let me, let me illustrate how this is true. You all know that I've got a big old family, a whole bunch of boys and a little girl. My wife has uh, been blessed to be able to bring five of our six kids into this world. Our sixth child is a foster child, and we're blessed to have her too. But I asked my wife the other day, what's, what's the greatest honor that God has ever given you in life? And she didn't even hesitate. She said, I think it's bringing our boys into this world. Women have this amazing gift from God that they are allowed to usher new life into the world that he has made. They get to carry that child for nine months, sometimes more, <laughs> sometimes less. They get to carry that child inside of themselves. They get to feel that little person moving around. They get to experience the growth that God is bringing about as he knits that child together in their womb. And when that baby is born, there's a special connection that occurs between mom and child. There is a bonding that happens. It is a beautiful thing. It's extremely painful. I'm not going to lie, okay? But it is a beautiful thing. And it's something that no man in this room will ever experience the way a woman will. You know that? I can only watch with admiration as my wife brings a child into this world. And I cry like a little girl, too. That's what I do. I cry and I watch because it is such a beautiful act. 
And God has ordained that special blessing for women and not for men. And don't feel that men are in any way less important to God just because he didn't entrust that beautiful responsibility to men. Just in the same way, if you're a woman and you have not born children, that doesn't mean you are any less than a woman who has born children. God gives special opportunities to some, but not everyone will fulfill those opportunities. Not every man in this room will serve as a deacon or as an elder. And that doesn't mean that God doesn't, doesn't love you the way that he loves his elders or his deacons. We have got to embrace the fact that God has got a variety of ways that we can serve him and bless his kingdom and participate in the body of Christ. Even in the Trinity, friends, there are things that the Spirit does that the two other persons of the Trinity do not do. I am not sealed forever in my faith by the Son. I'm sealed by the Spirit, right? God the Father did not give himself on the cross. Jesus the Son gave himself on the cross. Now they're unified, so there's a oneness there in that action. But Jesus is the one that the people saw and touched and felt because Jesus had the special role of taking on flesh and humbling himself and being a man and living perfectly so that we might have a sacrifice that would exceed all other sacrifices. That's his special responsibility. But it doesn't make the Father anything less just because he wasn't the one that came and hung on that tree. Each of the people of the Trinity, each of the persons of the Trinity has unique roles and responsibilities, and yet they experience an incredible unity and oneness that we as the church need to aspire to. Whatever role the Lord determines to give us, we should commit ourselves to living out that faithfully to his honor. Leadership in the church, friends, is drastically different, fundamentally different than leadership outside the church, isn't it? When you think about leadership in the world and leadership dynamics as it appears man to man, there's no wonder why people balk at the leadership structure that God has given to his church. Because the way that man functions to man apart from God is entirely different than the way that man is supposed to function man to man, woman to woman, man to woman, under the grace of Jesus Christ. Leadership in the church is not a position of honor that you earn or that you take by force. It is not about the leader himself. It is a stewardship that God assigns to someone. It is a responsibility that they fulfill, not for their own honor or for their own benefit, but for the benefit of the one that has assigned them the task. This is often sadly corrupted in the church. I know the ways of the world work their way into the church. And I've, I've seen so many heartbreaking examples of men who are supposed to lead the church humbly, patiently, lovingly, truthfully. And yet because of the corruption that can sometimes enter in the church, I've seen pastors who were tyrants. I've seen pastors who stole the offering and put it into their own offering plates. I've, I've, I've seen pastors who are domineering and mean and abusive. And that is a disgrace to God's church. And that's why we're taking the time to be so careful about this new position of deacon. We want to do it the way the Lord has called us to do it. If you've experienced that, please recognize that that is not a failure of the system that God has given to us of leadership. It is a failure of the hearts of men who don't always keep their eyes on Christ. We sing, I surrender all. And we sing those words, but sometimes we don't live them out. There will be people in God's church who fall short of the requirements that got them into the position in the first place. The positions that we have been 
discussing are not prizes to win or positions of personal advantage. They are two of the myriad of modes in which we express humble service to the Lord. 1 Peter, remember 5, verses 2 through 3, gave us this wonderful snapshot of biblical leadership and how it's so different than worldly leadership. It says, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So this position of elder, this position of deacon, in no way is it a competition to achieve to that level of faithfulness to the Lord. In fact, if you're hoping that someone will nominate you, maybe you're, you've been listening closely to this series and you think in your heart, maybe I could do that, and you're just hoping that someone will step up and nominate you to serve as a deacon, if no one does, don't be devastated by that fact. Don't take it personally. In fact, assess your heart and see if your desire for recognition is stealing your contentment away. Or if the Lord is, is truly compelling you to desire to serve in that, that role, then go take one of those forms and fill it out yourself. We are open to the leading of the Holy Spirit. So if you feel that God is, is pressing you towards this position, then come and talk with us and pray with us, and we'll join you in that journey of discovery of what the Lord wants you to do to serve Him with your life. Now there is a, um, a feminist sentiment that so long as men hold the positions of power in society, they will use those positions to oppress and disadvantage women. That's, that's a... That's a thought that's growing in, in popularity in our culture today, that no matter what, if men are leading over women, then they're going to discourage women. They're going to oppress women. They're going to hold women back. My prayer is that Christian women will realize that men who are filled with the Holy Spirit of God will not follow the same self-indulgent, self-serving path of the men who are trying to rule their own kingdoms in this world. That this godly leadership will be different because it is ordained by the Lord and it is empowered not by the will of man, but by the Holy Spirit of God. As we conclude, I want to make one more thing very clear to you, church. The participation of women in gospel ministry is vital. It is vital to the health of God's church. God has given spiritual gifts to every believer. Do you know that? When you pick up your scripture and you open it up to 1 Corinthians 12 and you read in verses 7 through 11, they're talking about how every person who puts their faith, hope, and trust in Jesus Christ has been granted spiritual gifting, abilities that were not theirs naturally, but that the Lord God has placed into their lives so that they might be useful for the edification of God's church. If you're a woman, you're a member of God's church if you trusted Jesus Christ. So God is equipping you to do good things for His glory so that you might shine as a bright light in a dark world. Every person, according to Scripture, is to use their spiritual gift for the benefit and health of the body of Christ. 1 Peter 4, verses 10 through 11. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Women, please don't see this division of responsibility as any indication that you are not useful to God's body. You are critical to the function 
of God's church. And in fact, I would say that if you look at so many of the churches in America, the faithful women of those churches are the things often keeping them afloat. The women who are constantly trying to help their husbands to see the importance of following after Jesus Christ. We see that pattern playing out. And as much as I would wish men would step up and rise to the challenge and be faithful leaders in their homes, so many times women are having to do that because the man is not willing to do it themselves. So women play a very, very faithful role in the, in the body of Christ. They're absolutely crucial to the ministries that go on here. They were crucial to the ministry of Jesus Christ. Read back through the Gospels and underline every time you see a woman helping Jesus. Every time Jesus' ministry was able to go forward because someone sponsored him. Someone took his disciples in and fed them. Somebody looked after them and was praying for their ministries so that the Holy Spirit would be working in that area as Jesus preached the truth and did miracles and cast out demons and healed and saved. Women are essential to the work of God. We see several examples in Scripture such as Titus 2, 3-5. through where the Apostle Paul, same one who said that women should not teach in the assembly of the, of the saints, and the same Paul that said that, that they're not to serve as elders and deacons, this Paul says that women are to teach and, and to encourage younger women. That the older women in the congregation who have, who have gained experience and knowledge for themselves are to pour that out into the, the women below them to help them become better women of faith, to help them become more courageous in what they believe and what they know. Philippians 2 2 through 4 talks about how there were some very faithful servants in Philippi that were making it possible for the gospel to be preached there. I entreat Euodia, I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, to help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So, sisters, we are workers together in this gospel that means so much to us. If you trust Jesus Christ, do not let the murmurings of the world, do not let the inability of those who do not have the Holy Spirit, their inability to understand the scripture and their misinterpretation of what these responsibilities mean, don't let that discourage you. Don't let that think that you're a second-class citizen in any way, shape, or form. You bear the image of God. That's better than any title that any man could ever place upon you. You are a child of God. You are useful to His church. Continue to serve faithfully the way God has called you to do. Friends, there is tremendous pressure right now being put on the church, trying to get evangelical denominations that care about the Scripture and want to stick to orthodox, traditional Christianity to change the way they see leadership in the house of God. I would encourage you, friends, to stand firm in these things, to not be ashamed of the gospel as it has been preached to you and has been presented to you in the scripture. Ligon Duncan, a pastor I really respect, says the denial of complementarianism undermines the church's practical embrace of the authority of scripture, thus eventually and inevitably harming the church's witness to the gospel. We are a Bible-teaching church. We are a uh, church that follows the things that God has given to us in his scripture. And when we start to stray away from that pattern, when we begin to let the loud voice of the culture become more authoritative to us than the inspired voice of our Savior, then our church will be in trouble. We pray and hope that God will help us to celebrate design in creating men and women gloriously equal in their dignity and equal in their purpose, but wonderfully different in their roles that they play in his church.
Would you bow your heads with me as we pray in conclusion? God, we thank you for your love, and we pray that as we sing this final song before we go, that you'd give us joy in our hearts, Lord, that we would trust that you are leading us to truth, that you would not ordain anything in your church that would be for our harm, but rather it would be for our benefit, Lord God. You work all things to the good for those who trust you and are called according to your purpose. And so I ask, Lord, that we would be happy to fulfill whatever role you put in front of us. Lord God, each one of us is going to have a different story for you. Each one of us is going to have a testimony that's unique in the way that we serve and the ways that we apply our gifts. Let us not be jealous of one another, Lord God. Let us not envy the gift that our neighbor has or the responsibility that you have given one brother or sister over another, Lord. Help us instead care about the health of the full body of Christ. Let us be concerned first and foremost that your name is glorified and that you are worshipped the way that you have instructed us to worship. We love you and thank you for all these things. In the powerful name of our one true Savior, Jesus, the head of the church. Amen.